Well, let's continue to worship the Lord as we open the scriptures this morning. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in chapter 2, especially focusing on verses 16 through 21. To kind of catch you up uh, on the larger context of Matthew chapters 1 and 2, you remember the New Testament starts with this long list of names, um, helping connect Jesus with the father Abraham, and with the king David, showing that he is their promised descendant and thus worthy of this title, the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, the promised one. That's Matthew's big idea, and it's a big part of the gospel itself, that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Savior. Matthew's not just declaring that, he's giving it proof showing how he has the right genealogical connections to Father Abraham and to King David. He continues to establish this truth as he unfolds the birth narrative of Christ. At the end of chapter 1, he talks about how Jesus is virgin-born, adopted into the line of David, and that fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. As the story continues in Matthew chapter 2, the magi, the wise men, make their way to Jerusalem looking for the newborn king. They saw his star from the east. They make the journey over, and they find out that the newborn king is born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, once again establishing the scriptural proof that Jesus is who he says he is, the Christ. And then last week, we saw how King Herod uh, was upset by this news that there was a newborn king of the Jews. And so Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, is warned in a dream to flee to Egypt. And this is in fulfillment of another one of the prophets, Hosea chapter 11, that says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And so Matthew is declaring that Jesus is the Christ, and he's providing proof that he is the Christ. And he's continuing this as Matthew's telling of the Christmas story goes on in chapter 2, verses 16 through 21. Herod is not done pursuing the Christ child. Herod is not done trying to eliminate this rival king. And so we're picking up the story um, from there. In chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Then King Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And so he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when King Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph rose took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite parts of the Christmas season is all of the traditions that it brings to our families. 
Um, and there's the traditional traditions, right? Like lights and gifts and music and church on Christmas Eve. But then there's the unique traditions that are specific to each one of our families. So, for example, one of my friends told me this past week that for he and his family growing up, every Christmas Eve, they would eat Mexican food. And there was no real rationale for this. He didn't know why they did this or how it started, but they had always done it, and they still always do it. Even though he and his siblings are now scattered across the country, um, they each text one another pictures of whatever Mexican dish they're having on Christmas Eve and wish each other Feliz Navidad. For my family, one of these playful, happy traditions that we have is opening up my grandmother's gift to each one of us on Christmas Eve. Now, my grandmother, God bless her, she's one of my favorite people ever. We are really close. But she's about 98 years old, and her sense of fashion is, maybe not surprisingly, also outdated. So even though my brothers and I, we are well into adulthood, she will still get us each Christmas matching sweaters. And we're thinking like, Grandma, grown men don't coordinate their clothing like this. Maybe when we were in third grade. But still, we put on our sweaters, we laugh, we take pictures. Um, and recently, she got each one of our wives these long silk satin nightgowns. And those were real special. We got a big kick out of those. <laughs> but that's one of these silly, lighthearted traditions that we enjoy every year. And I have to tell you this one. This is an example from my wife's family. This one's interesting. So at least on her mom's side, uh, they descend from Sweden. And there's this historic Swedish figure named Lucia, who apparently around Christmas wore a long white robe and a wreath of candles on her head and would read the Christmas story. So the tradition in my wife's family is that they would reenact this. Each year, her or one of her sisters would put on a long white robe and wear a wreath of burning candles on their head and read the Christmas story to the family. And while this is taking place, all the lights in the house have to be turned off. So it's pitch black other than the head candles. And I've seen this on VHS home videos before, and I'm watching it like, what sort of cult-like activity is going on here? This is bonkers. But my wife and her sisters love it. It was so much fun for them, and they couldn't wait till it was their year to play uh, uh, St. Lucia and dress up. So again, it's one of these peculiar, unique, happy traditions uh, around Christmas time that our families love. But one of the realities of these kinds of traditions, if we're not careful, one of these realities about them is that they can be used to ignore reality. Because it seems possible that we can move through this season carrying on our funny, happy, lighthearted traditions, but the reality underneath is very different. Because oftentimes these traditions cause us to focus on the joy of Christmas while ignoring the painful parts. Christmas Eve tacos, grandma's matching sweaters, and wreath candle hats in the dark are all fun and games, right? These things lift our spirits, they make us laugh, and rightly so. But what's real is that for many people, the holidays often bring up pain and hardship. From the stress of the season to family issues to feeling the sting of lost loved ones, there's actually quite a bit of pain around the holidays as well. The problem is 
that amidst our Christmas traditions and the expectation of holiday cheer, too often our pain is ignored, avoided, or just simply left unacknowledged. And this only makes things harder. This only makes things more challenging. We talk about Christmas like it's the most wonderful time of the year, but what do we do when it doesn't feel like it? What do we do when it doesn't feel like it? On top of all that, furthermore, when facing a painful holiday season, our traditions, even around the Christmas story itself, don't always seem super helpful. There's the singing angels and the joyful shepherds and the worshipful wise men. How does that help me when going through my first Christmas without my spouse in years? How is the shiny star and fluffy farm animals relevant to the terrible divorce that I just completed? How is this cute manger baby helpful to those suffering from the war in Ukraine? There's a lot of pain in our world. There's a lot of pain in our lives. Does the Christmas story have anything to do with that? Well, as I said, we're continuing in our Christmas sermon series, Fulfilled. We've been looking at the birth narrative of Christ as it's told in the Gospel of Matthew. And again, throughout this narrative, Matthew's main point is to highlight how Jesus fulfilled the promises of God found in the Old Testament prophets, but also helping us see how these things matter for our world today. And this morning, we're exploring a text that is not part of the traditional Christmas text of Scripture. These verses are not some of your go-to first you think about when you think of Jesus' advent. In fact, many modern portrayals of the Christmas story just skip over this one entirely. But as we're going to see, it has a lot to say to us in dealing with the painful parts of the holiday season and the painful parts of our lives in general. Because as we'll see, Jesus' birth story does not ignore the painful parts of our lives. Jesus' birth story highlights those things. And in doing so, in looking at the full breadth of Jesus' birth narrative, it allows us to see that in him, our mourning is turned into hope. In Christ, our mourning turns to hope. So we'll walk back through this story asking ourselves simply, how? How can Christ's story help us walk through pain and suffering? When can, what can this movement from mourning to hope look like? And the first step is that we must face the reality of evil. Face the reality of evil. So let's jump back into the bigger picture of the narrative. At the start of chapter 2, the Magi wise men, they show up in Jerusalem asking for the location of the newborn king of the Jews. And the current king over Judea, Herod, says he's troubled by this request. Because being asked about a newborn king assumes there is a new king. And his reign perhaps is coming to an end shorter than he thought. But Herod wants to be subtle in how he responds to this. So he sends the Magi to Bethlehem. You remember that's where the chief priests and scribes said that Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod sends the Magi to Bethlehem and he tells them in chapter 2 verse 8, Go and search for the child in Bethlehem. When you find him, return to me, tell me who he is, so that I too can go and worship him. That was what Herod said his intentions were. 
So off the Magi go, you remember from a couple of weeks ago, they're led to Jesus' house. They fall down before him. They worship him, offering him their gifts. Then in verse 12, it says that the Magi are warned in a a dream not to return to Herod. So God intervenes, telling the Magi, do not go back to Herod. Do not tell him who the Christ child is. Go back to your own country by another way. So Herod's back in Jerusalem, waiting, waiting for the Magi to return with the information he needs, the identity of the newborn king, but it never comes. Bethlehem's only about six miles from Jerusalem, not that far. So after a couple of weeks, maybe, you're thinking, they're not coming back. So as Matthew says it in verse 16, Herod eventually realizes he's been tricked. So what does Herod do? Well, What do powerful people often do when you try to take their power from them? Whatever it takes, whatever it takes to hold on to his power, what we're going to see is that Herod's character, his integrity is eaten alive by his lust for power. Verse 16, Matthew writes, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And because he couldn't find the one child that he needed to eliminate, he instead sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod responds with rage. He probably said something to himself like, I tried to do this the easy way. I tried to do this the easy way and find out the one newborn king, but the Magi tricked me, so now we got to do this the hard way. And so every male child who could have possibly been born during the relevant time period, every one of them is slaughtered. Bethlehem was a small town, probably a population of 1,000 people, so estimates are that it was anywhere between 15 to 30 baby boys who were mass murdered by a tyrant king. Friends, this is the reality of evil in our world that we must face. And this is the Christmas story. Several years ago, I was a graduate teaching assistant in a pastoral leadership class that I had at the seminary that I had attended. And we were covering pastoral care for people who are facing crisis and tragedy. And our main professor uh, for the class had one of his friends come and share with the students his own story about the death of his daughter. The man's wife was named Matt Bevan. He was a businessman in the area who would, a couple of years later, uh, actually become the governor of Kentucky. But that day, he was sharing with us his story about the events surrounding the death of his oldest daughter. Brittany was her name. She was 17 years old. It was a rainy day, not even a heavy rain, almost misting. But she lost control of her car, gets into an accident. Apparently, it wasn't even that bad of a wreck. But immediately upon EMS arrival, Brittany was gone. No chance of resuscitation or help So she's taken to a hospital, placed onto some sort of bed or table, and Matt and his wife were sent into the room to identify the body. 
And they went in, just the two of them for this. And Matt told us that when they walked in, his wife just collapsed over Brittany's body, kind of slouched over the table trying to embrace her. And Matt just sat back watching this. And I'll never forget, he told us, watching this scene, I have never seen something more unnatural my entire life. I have never seen something so wrong, a mother holding her dead child. Because mothers create life. Mothers hold life within them. And yet here she is, holding death. Friends, here's the twin truth. It's tough to hold on to. Our world is beautiful. Our world is full of majestic scenery, glorious creatures. It's full of wonderful colors and delightful experiences. Our world is beautiful, but our world is also broken. All is not as it should be. The created order is distorted. God's original design has been corrupted, and things are not the way they were meant to be. And no other worldview, no other religion, no other philosophy of life is as honest about this as Christianity is. Other religions are like, yeah, our world is broken, but if we act good enough, If we have good behavior, then things will go well. Yeah, right. Ask Job. Ask Jesus how that worked out. Both of these men lived blameless lives, and yet they suffered immensely because our world is broken. We are broken. It's an inconvenient truth, but it is the truth. And if we are going to process our pain, If we are going to walk through it, we've first got to face it. We've first got to be honest about it and bring these painful parts of our story to the light. Ignoring it, avoiding it, suppressing it is only going to make things worse because it won't be living in reality. It'll be living in la-la land. It'll be living a fake life if we don't acknowledge these dark things that have happened or are happening. Friends, this is the truth. The reality is that in our world, the worst possible things that could happen, happen. That's how broken our world is, and that's what's testified to here, even in the Christmas story. How does this story help us move forward through pain and suffering? First, it helps us face the reality of evil. There is a lot of dead babies around Jesus' birth. Secondly, what we see happen through this story is the role of lament. And it calls us to embrace the role of lament. So as Matthew tells this story of Herod's brutal actions... He connects it with this ancient prophecy of Jeremiah. He's going to quote Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. So look at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. After the children are killed, Matthew says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. 
Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Okay, so to understand why Matthew connects Jesus' story to this prophecy, it's helpful for us to understand a bit more about Jeremiah's original context. So Jeremiah lived around 600 B.C., around 600 B.C., during the time leading up to and then just after what is known as the Babylonian exile. So this was when God disciplined his rebellious people by having the wicked nation of Babylon invade Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people. Babylon invades Jerusalem and then deports God's people out of the promised land back to Babylon. It's also known as the Babylonian captivity because God's people were held captive in Babylon far from home. Well, Jeremiah chapter 31 is part of a larger section where Jeremiah is speaking of the eventual return of Israel after exile. But even as he speaks of this future hope, Jeremiah acknowledges Israel's bitter pain. Jeremiah acknowledges their struggle during exile. And so he mentions the voice of weeping that, heard, that is heard in Ramah. Ramah was a town just five miles north of Jerusalem, and it was on the route out of Jerusalem to Babylon where they were exiled. So these captives had to walk through this town as they were being deported. And Rachel here is pictured as sort of the metaphorical mother of Israel. So Rachel is the patriarch Jacob's wife from long before 600 BC in the book of Genesis. But as one of the matriarchs of the nation, Rachel is sort of the stand-in for the mothers of Israel. And Jeremiah says that Rachel here is weeping. Rachel here has loud lamentation because her children are suffering as they're being led out of Jerusalem through Ramah into exile. And now Matthew connects this moment in Israel's history. Matthew connects this passage from Jeremiah's prophecy to the story of Jesus and the reality of evil that surrounded his birth. The response of Rachel to Israel's exile is now the response of these mothers in Bethlehem. These ladies who endured the slaughter of their babies' boys and these mamas don't hold back. Their voice cries out. Their weeping is verbalized through what Matthew calls loud lamentation. So I want you to imagine you're having a family gathering on Christmas Eve. And maybe this isn't too foreign to some of our experience. There's a family fight. Somebody says something. Drama happens. Things are said. A fight breaks out. Everybody goes to bed mad at one another on Christmas Eve. Then the next morning, you all wake up. No one says anything about it. No one says anything about the fight. You open presents, you have breakfast, act like nothing is wrong. But underneath, you all feel that tension. All the stuff from the night before is still there that morning. But oftentimes, this is how we can treat pain and suffering in our world. Just ignore it. Just avoid it. Pretend it'll all go away. Fake it till you make it. But that's the thing. It doesn't go away. It goes with us. 
and you can only fake it for so long. So finally, one of your siblings speaks up. Can we talk about last night? And initially, there's this awkward moment, but again, underneath, there's a sigh of relief because now you know we can face reality. Now you know we can start working towards healing because somebody is talking. Otherwise, we'll stay stuck. So lament what Rachel, what the mothers of Israel, what the mothers of Bethlehem did. Lament, it is a form of prayer in which we acknowledge what is real. We acknowledge the painful circumstances in our lives. We acknowledge the negative feelings in our hearts. We acknowledge exactly how we feel about God to God. And sometimes it ain't pretty. These prayers don't always sound pious or reverent. So think about this. Psalms of lament. Psalms of lament are some of the most common, if not the most common types of psalms in the book of Psalms. So for example, Psalm chapter 44, verse 23, the writer says to God, Rouse yourself, Lord. Why do you sleep, O God? So the psalmist is looking at the difficult circumstances in his life, and he laments to God, it sure seems like you are asleep. When are you going to wake up, God? Because things are out of control. And this type of prayer is all over the Psalms. The Psalm writers wrestling with God in prayer, sharing their complaints. They really press the limits for what passes as acceptable expressions of prayer in church. But you see, the book of Psalms is an invitation to this kind of honesty about what we're really going through. The book of Psalms is an invitation to this kind of honesty to share what we're really feeling, what we really think. Because hear this, friends, God wants a relationship with you. And a relationship requires that kind of honesty about what you're really going through, about what you feel, about what you think. And we share that with him through prayers of lament. But here's my concern as one of your pastors. In our concern to not doubt the love of God, we minimize the role of lament. I want to say that again. In our concern to not doubt the love of God, we minimize the role of lament. Like, I know I'm going through this terrible situation. I know I'm facing these awful circumstances. I know I'm feeling a lot of sadness and anger, but I can't doubt God. I can't question God. I can't complain to God. I can't express frustration to God. But friends, I can't be adamant enough. That is an unbiblical line of thought because that is not what happens in the book of Psalms and that is not what happens in the Christmas story. To not express our pain fully is not to acknowledge the brokenness of the world fully. To not express our frustration and complaints fully is not to relate with God fully. He wants you. He wants to know you. Yes, yes, he knows everything. But he wants to know you. Every part of you. 
He is father. He is friend. He can take it. He wants it in your pain. Let him hear from you. And don't live in that morning after the fight silence where you just pretend to sweep things under the rug like those who've gone before us, the mothers of Bethlehem, the mothers of Israel, our matriarch in the faith, Rachel, face the reality of evil and embrace the role of lament. Get honest with God. He wants it. He can hold space for you. Finally, receive the promise of return. Receive the promise of return. Matthew picks up the story in verse 19. The children are killed. The mothers weep. But, verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So like many powerful men, just like many tyrannical kings who oppose God, Herod gets swept into the ash heap of eternity and the plans and purposes of God march on. Matthew gratefully reports here that Herod is dead. Those who sought the child's life are dead and Jesus is alive. The plans and purposes of God continue unstoppable into the future. And so Joseph and his family make their way back to Israel, out of Egypt. You see here the completion, the resolution of this story. It is the bedrock of what allows us to experience and regain hope even after we suffer. Because no matter how hard we are oppressed... No matter how much we lose, no matter how bitter our grief, in the end, in the end, God will prevail. And there is for us the ultimate promise, the eventual promise of victory for God and his people. Herod dies, Jesus lives. Martin Luther King Jr. is famous for saying, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. The arc of history is long. Oh, it is long. There is a long time that sad times occur. It is a long time that injustice and wickedness prosper. The arc of history is painfully long, but it bends towards justice because there is a God of justice who rights every wrong, who crushes every Herod, whose plans and purposes are unfailing. It was this belief in ultimate victory that allowed MLK and the civil rights movement to endure, and it is what allows us to endure, to move forward through life, because we know how this story ends. But friends, you think about this. If we live in a godless universe, then we do not know how this ends. Hear me. If we live in a godless universe, we do not know how this ends. If we live in a random, accidental, godless universe, then we don't ultimately know anything. Certainly, we do not know the future. 
And so in an atheistic, even agnostic worldview, there is no basis for hope, none. But if there is a God, if the gospel is true, then this story ends with the most amazing display of sacrificial love, the Lord of the universe being pinned to a cross in our place for the removal of our shame, He took it upon himself. That's how this story ends. But even more than that, the story ends with him rising from the grave, having conquered sin, Satan, death, and hell, offering us eternal life. That is a basis for hope. That is the story that every human heart longs for. That is the story that we are invited into through the gospel. And so now, as those who have stepped into this story of redemption, as those who have stepped into this story of ultimate hope, we, church, can be those who are honest about the reality of evil. We can be those who lament transparently before God about what we're feeling. And we can be those who cling to his hope-giving promise of return. You think about this. Jesus Returned from Egypt, unscathed, despite Herod's best efforts. And in the same way, Jesus returned from the grave, fully renewed, completely unscathed, despite death's best efforts. And God, in the end, will return all of creation to the way it was originally intended to be, free from sin, free from death full of life, full of hope, full of joy. It is what our hearts long for and is the story that Christ has fulfilled. Let's step into it with faith, with hope. I pray it would be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.